Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's episode. Today we are continuing through the book of Romans, and we will begin chapter 11 today. So I'd like today to read Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, and we will go through chapter 11, verse 6. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleaded with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. We're going to cover this section today. And to do so, we just want to briefly look back and see where we are in Romans and in Paul's great treatise in this book. So, chapter 1 through 5, Paul deals with guilty sinners who are worthy of the death penalty, standing guilty before a holy God, who have the opportunity, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, completed on the cross of Calvary, and accepted by God when he raised him from the dead, to be saved, to believe in Jesus' finished work, be born again and justified by faith alone without any works of the law, any works of their own, period. Just by faith, true faith in Jesus Christ, believing in him for their salvation. Then we saw how when a person does that and they are justified by faith, what does that mean in terms of daily practical Christian living now? How does it change their life? And so we looked at that in chapters 6 through 8. We saw how in chapter 7, we can't do it alone. So chapter 8, God tells us how it is done, and it is done through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So now Paul is going to give us the understanding of, okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean for the church, what does that mean for Israel? And what is the relationship between the church and Israel? What about the Jewish people? What about Israel? Is God done with them? 
So that's what chapters 9 through 11 are dealing with. And we saw in chapter 9 where Paul begins with Israel's past disobedience and rebellious state that has brought them into a place where they are rejecting the Messiah who did come because he didn't come the way they expected him to come. So in chapter 10, Paul addresses their current sad state of rebellion and rejection, that that seed of rebellion and and idolatry and rejection of God has continued even to Paul's current day in the time of his writing. And so he's dealing with that in chapter 10. However, in chapter 10, we also hear and see clearly God's heart for the Jewish people and Paul's heart for the Jewish people. We see how Paul wants them so desperately to receive Jesus and be saved and become a part of this new church that God has built. The remnant did. There was a remnant who did. The 12 disciples, for instance, and so on. They built the church. They started the church, and Paul became a part of the church. And so now Paul is longing for his people to come as well and to find Yeshua, the Messiah, and be saved. That's Paul's heart. And he tells us clearly in this book, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 10, through verse 17, exactly how that's done. And the Lord is stirring in me to perhaps do a different message actually on that section and and explain that a little further, drawing from some of what we've already looked at in these episodes. But that may or may not come. That's in the, the Lord's timing and the Lord's will. But Paul tells them clearly that their current state of rebellion and rejection of Messiah isn't permanent. It doesn't have to be. There's hope for them. They can believe. And faith will come through the hearing of that rhema word. And we spoke a good bit about that yesterday. So now Paul begins to quote some of the Old Testament passages that prove that God's word has gone to them. They have no excuse, etc. And so then Paul quotes from Deuteronomy where Moses spoke the word of God and, and wrote the word of God for us, where God said, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy. He's talking to his people, Israel. And he says, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. So in other words, he is telling us that here in this prophetic word, which is one of the prophecies that does include the, the church in the Old Testament. Now, Paul will tell us in a later place that the church was a mystery. It was hidden in the Old Testament, but the Jews didn't catch it, and they certainly didn't understand it. It was a mystery. It was hidden from their eyes. But this is one of the passages where God prophesied about a coming people of God that he would use as his instrument to proclaim his message, to be the city on the hill, to tell the word of the Lord, and to provoke the Jewish people who are in a state of rebellion and rejection of him. He is using the church to provoke them to jealousy. So what does that mean? And it means, the Greek words here, to provoke to jealousy, means to stimulate alongside or to excite to rivalry, that's one understanding, 
or to excite to emulation. It's used five times in the New Testament and and four of those five are all in Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11. The other one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And that's the only other place in the New Testament where it is used. So God is serious about the, the Jewish people being provoked to jealousy by this instrument that he is using the church to be. Now, in verse 20 of chapter 10, Paul clearly speaks of the church. This is another prophecy. We looked at it yesterday where Isaiah prophesied about the church, how God is going to be found by those who weren't even looking for him, who weren't even seeking him. And he's going to be revealed to those who weren't even asking for him. And God has done that. He has done that. Jesus came on the scene and he chose 12 disciples to begin this beautiful church that he has called. So these are the ones who have found God through his revelation and leading. And this church, this church includes the remnant of the Jews that were prophesied in the Old Testament. Let's look at a couple of places that speak of that. The first one I'd like to read is in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. God is speaking here to Isaiah. This is during the time of Isaiah's call, where the chapter where Isaiah is called as a prophet, called to go to God's people. And in verse 13, the Lord is speaking to Isaiah and he says, But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terrible tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. In other words, there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be something left. I'm going to judge my people for their sins, but there will be a remnant that will remain, and there will be a holy seed in that remnant. In my grace, I'm going to leave a remnant. Then in Isaiah chapter 8, I want to read verses 11 through 18. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. A good word for us today also. Continuing on. He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. We've already seen that in the Roman study. As a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord, who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. So he's saying here that there's going to be some that God is going to use and he calls them his disciples. Those are the ones that will contain that holy seed he spoke about a moment ago. Continuing on and he says, and when they say to you, 
seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. In other words, Isaiah's prophesying God is telling him here that there will be those that will say, oh, just go and seek a word over here. Look for, look for some prophet that's going to tell you something. Look for this medium. Go get the, the tarot cards. Or even Christians now are looking at these, they call them these destiny cards. Uh-uh. Have nothing to do with that have nothing to do with those evil deeds of darkness, those unfruitful things of darkness. I implore you, rid yourself of all of that and obey the word of the Lord here. Seek the Lord and his word. Go, he says here, to the law and to the testimony. In other words, to the word of the living God. That's where you'll find your answers. He will speak to you. If you're a child of the living God and you are calling upon him, don't go after other things. Don't fall into these traps of all these prophets and all of this stuff and seeking after this and that. You go to the word of God. You go to the very God himself that sits on the throne in your prayer time, in your prayer closet, and you let him speak to you. Hallelujah. That's a good word for us today. And I got a little bit off track there with that, but I couldn't let it go. The Spirit of the Lord just, just wanted me, I believe, to share that as well. But Isaiah is clearly telling us that there's a remnant and that holy seed is in that remnant. God has, in his grace, left a remnant among the people and that remnant is believing in him. In Jesus' day, it was those 12 disciples that he called. He began with those. One of those was the son of perdition, and Jesus knew it all along. But the 11 were the faithful ones. And then we come to the book of Acts, and it has now grown. And we will see that. Then I want to read Isaiah chapter 37, verse 31 and 32. Isaiah chapter 37, verse 31 and 32. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward, and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So even though Isaiah was prophesying various judgments that he knew were coming because they were rebellious and would not turn to the Lord, would not repent of their evil deeds, yet God promises in his grace that he will bring forth a remnant and that that remnant is going to take root downward and bear fruit upward. Now, there's many applications to that. And of course, I believe that it was talking about them being restored back to their land and, and living in their land and growing pro produce, etc., etc. There's some literal application to that, but there's also spiritual application that we can glean from this, that we take the remnant will take root in believing in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and in growing in God, in growing in God's word, they will take root downward and then bear fruit upward. And Jesus speaks of these things in John chapter 8, verses 30 through 36, 
and in John chapter 15, verse 8 and verse 16. Praise be to God for a remnant. He will always keep a remnant. And so Paul in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 10 is contrasting the church, which includes that remnant because the church began from that remnant. We must not forget that. The disciples were the foundation. The, the Bible says the apostles, and the word of the apostles is the foundation that the church is, is built upon with Jesus being that chief cornerstone. The foundation is laid and the apostles and all of that, their word, their doctrine that was given to them through God and through the revelation of the Spirit of God and the inspiration of the Spirit of God forms that basis that the church then has been built upon. And the originators of that, by grace, by God's grace, were the Jewish disciples that it started with. So he's contrasting that in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 10 with the whole of the nation or the, the primary nation and the Jewish people as a whole that have continued to rebel and reject Jesus and reject God and the one that he had prophetically told them was coming when he came, they rejected him. And so now Paul is moving right into chapter 11 from this point because he's not going to leave us misunderstanding what he's told us in these last several sections of chapter 10. He foresees that this could be misunderstood, and so he's bringing complete clarity here. He, in chapter 11, is going to give clarity on two main points, but he's also going to speak about Israel's future hope. Now, we've seen Paul this, do this in one other transition in two chapters before in this book, and it was from chapter 5 to chapter 6, because in chapters 1 through 5, Paul had dealt with justification by faith alone. You believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved. And so in chapter 6, he clarifies, because he doesn't want people to misunderstand what some are even professing today, and we typically may refer to it as some kind of hyper-grace or seeker-sensitive type environment, where you can just come to Jesus, say a sinner's prayer, and do, live any way you want to, and you're okay. And so Paul clarifies that from chapter 5 and into chapter 6. He does not want us to misunderstand that that's not true Christianity. If someone truly believes in Jesus and has been born again, justified by faith alone, and their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they're a brand new person. They're made new by the Spirit of the living God. They are born again. They're a newborn babe in Christ, so to speak. And they are a brand new creation. Old things are passed away. New things have now become, have now come. And so Paul is clarifying again here. He says, I don't want you to misunderstand what I just said. So he comes right off, right out of the gate, and he says in verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? In other words, I don't want you to be left with this thought from chapter 10 that, okay, God's washed his hands of the Jewish people. They're done. They're over. They're gone. Now God is only working and concentrated on the church and that alone. And so Paul does not want us misunderstanding. 
So he says, God is not done with Israel in the strongest way he can say it in the Greek language. Their current state of rebellion and rejection of him is not permanent. Now, it may be for some of the individuals in that, but God's got a greater plan ultimately for Israel, and he will develop the understanding of that for us in chapter 11. God has not written off the Jewish people. And how does Paul give us proof of that? He says this, For I also am an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, hello, I'm standing right before you. I am proof positive that God hasn't written us all off because I'm one who's in the church now. I'm one who has been justified by faith alone. I'm a Jew who has come to believe in Yeshua, the promised Messiah of my Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. He says, I'm proof before you myself. We also have the proof of all of the original disciples, as I said, the 11 faithful ones. And so they became the ones who actually built and originated the church, became the church founders, so to speak, of that early church. So in chapters 9 and 10, Paul has expressed Israel's past failures, Israel's current failures, but yet there's hope for them because they too can be saved. The gospel, he says in chapter 10, was for everyone. He said it, there's neither Jew nor Greek. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. Everyone who will believe on Jesus, true faith, true saving faith, confess him and believe in him, will be saved. So Paul makes that very clear. And he says that there's still hope for his people. He has also led us to understand in chapter 10 that they need to hear the truth. They need to hear the word of God. Because when we deliver to them the Logos, the word of the living God, the Holy Spirit of the living God can then take whatever rhema word from that that they need to hear and birth faith in their heart. And when that faith is originated in their heart, they can believe on Jesus, the Messiah. Praise God. So they need to hear. He also tells us that the church is God's instrument to help them. We are his instrument to provoke them to jealousy, to excite them and come alongside and stimulate them toward God. But we are also God's instrument to bring the beautiful message that they can then hear and God can use to bring them to saving faith and relationship with him. So Paul tells us also in chapter 11, in verse 2, that God foreknew about his people. He knew about their failure. He knew this all along. Jesus came on the scene in his nation among his people, the Jews, and he said, I'm going to build my church. What was the church? It was that prophesied people that had not been the people of God before, like Hosea prophesied about, that people that were not a nation, like Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy, 
that people that weren't really out there seeking God to begin with that Isaiah prophesied about. And he showed us these in chapters 9 and 10. So now he proves his point, not just by using his own example, but also now he goes all the way back to Elijah's day. And so I want us to go back and look at this. The passages that he quotes here come from the book of First Kings. So he takes us back to the story of Elijah, to the example of Elijah. And I want to read a few verses from chapter 18 and from chapter 19 of First Kings. And in First Kings, we read the story about Elijah, the account of when he calls everyone up to Mount Carmel. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but you can read it. I encourage you to do so. But it's the chapter where God tells Elijah, he says, go tell Ahab, gather everybody together. I've had enough of this. My people are bowing to Baal and they're not choosing me and I'm tired of it. They're kind of wavering between me and the gods of the nations, the, these idols, and I'm sick of it. God says, I've had enough. It's time to deal with this. So he tells Elijah, he said, go tell Ahab, gather everybody together on Mount Carmel. And so Elijah does. And you can read the entire story. I want to begin the reading in verse 20. So it says this. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. So now you will see earlier that you have 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtoreth. Okay, so you got 850 prophets on the one side and you got Elijah on the other side. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. And we'd already seen there was also the 400 prophets of Ashtoreth as well. He doesn't mention those particular ones here. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So there's this contest. There's this showdown on Mount Carmel. And God is going to prove once and for all to these people that he is God. He alone. So he gathers all these other prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. And they go get their bull and they build their altar and they lay their fire, and I mean, their wood on it and all of this stuff. And so they start. Elijah says, you go first. You go first. Take as long as you need. I'm okay. So they go first and they start early in the morning. You know, I guess about nine o'clock or whatever. Seems like the text indicates it's about nine. And so they start and they're crying out and they're praying and all of this. And, you know, so so nothing happens. Nothing happens. No response. No response. Go through several hours later. 
keep on doing it, no response. So Elijah starts picking at him and he says, okay, well, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's going to the bathroom or maybe he's on a journey or maybe he's sleeping. He's tired. He needs a rest. Elijah's, Elijah's kind of mocking them. And so the Bible says that they even get to the point where they start cutting themselves and all of that. And just a side word, I believe cutting is not of God. And I pray if you, if you have been involved in that, may God deliver you because that is not from the Lord. The Lord does not want you being hurt or hurting yourself. He came that we have life and life more abundantly. So I just throw that out there. But anyway, they came, they were cutting themselves. They were doing all these dances. They were really just getting into this thing, trying and trying and trying to get their dead God, hoping that they, they would get some fire from this God that they worshiped. But this God was a dead, false God. So Elijah says, okay, you've had your turn. Nothing's happened. My turn now, basically. I'm paraphrasing a little bit to give you the gist of the story. I want to read beginning in verse 29. So when midday was passed, they prophesied until the offering, until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, which was three o'clock. So they've been at this thing all day long. Notice this, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So then it's Elijah's turn. So Elijah gets his ready. Now Elijah tells him, he says, okay, build the altar. We're going to put the, the wood and everything. We're going to lay it. Now, guess what? I want you to go and get a precious commodity at this time because it had not rained in three and a half years. And so Elijah says, go get a bunch of water because I want you to pour it on the altar, pour it all over, pour it down into a trench. And so it says, so the water ran all around the altar and he filled the trench with water. So now you've got wet, soggy wood, a wet altar, water all around that has run down. And water was a precious commodity to them in that moment. Verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Hallelujah. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Praise God. God made it abundantly clear through this miraculous work that he and he alone is God. Okay, so we've had this great showdown. Then 
Elijah prophesies to Ahab, it's about to rain. So, you know, he sees the, the little hand and he knows that the rain is coming. God's going to bring the rain again. But then we go to chapter 19. And I want to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword, because Elijah had had them all killed. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she threatens Elijah's life. Notice verse 3. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God or the same mountain that Moses was on, Mount Sinai. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. That's the passage that Romans quotes for us, that Paul quotes in Romans. Verse 11 of 1 Kings 19. Then he, meaning God, said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there's 
many things that we could talk about from this passage, many lessons to learn through this whole story, through this whole example. But basically, in essence, Elijah had this wonderful mountaintop experience where God showed himself strong. And then Jezebel threatens Elijah, and Elijah gets scared, and he runs off. And he runs down to Beersheba, and then on from there, and he ends up in Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And God comes to him, and God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, just kill me, Lord. Just take me. I'm done. Isn't it enough? I've been very zealous for you. Surely it's enough. Let me just go. They're trying to kill me anyway. And God says, oh, no, you're not finished. You're going to still anoint Haziel. You're going to anoint Jehu. And I'm going to give you your mentor, your mentee, who's going to replace you when it is your time to come to me. And so he tells Elijah, he says, Elijah, you're not alone. I've still got a remnant. God will always, always, always have a remnant. And so even all the way back to Elijah's day, Paul is reminding them, that God always has a remnant. And so we've seen from some of these prophetic words and the example of Elijah, there is always a remnant. So you come to the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene and he chooses 12 and 11 of those do believe in him and are faithful and begin to establish the church after him. Even in Jesus' day, that 12 grew to 70 And then by the time you come to Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, there's 120 there. And then now Paul. Paul is not of the original ones among the original disciples, but God had chosen him and God had appointed him. And in God's grace, God brought Paul to Jesus. I want us to draw to a close here by looking at this account. And then we'll go further into chapter 11, beginning in the next episode, and continue moving forward. But I want us to turn back now and look at Acts chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This was Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul. Now look at this down a little bit further in that chapter. I want to read beginning in verse 10 of Acts chapter 9. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So God's telling this disciple, Ananias, to go and pray now for Saul of Tarsus. Now notice verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So in other words, Ananias is having this discussion with the Lord and he says, now wait a minute, Lord, are you sure about this? Because I've heard about this guy and, you know, he's come to, to persecute us. He's come to bind us and take us back to Jerusalem. And there's a lot of harm he's doing to the people of God. Do, are you sure, Lord? This is kind of what Ananias is doing. And I praise God. God can handle that. We can be honest with the Lord. I believe he wants us to be. So the Lord clarified to Ananias and gave him peace with the word of the Lord. Verse nine, verse 15, excuse me. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So God called Saul and he sent Ananias to pray for him and to deliver his calling and his mission. So Paul was already chosen as an instrument through the grace of God. He was one of the remnant according to God's foreknowledge and according to God's grace. And it had nothing to do with Paul's work. Matter of fact, his works were totally opposite. And Ananias was pointing that out. He's like, God, he sure doesn't seem like a vessel of yours right now. I don't know why you'd want to use him because his works are totally contrary. He's trying to hurt your people. Do you see? This proves that it's not about our works. It's God's grace. He kept a remnant of people who he knew he was going to cause them to hear the rhema word, and that rhema word would come alive to them in their heart, birth faith in them, and bring them to a place where they believe in Jesus Christ and call upon him for salvation. And Paul is saying, that's what happened to me. And so because Paul is using his own example here and tying us back to the things that he just told us, there is Hope for Israel. God is not done with the Jewish people. Praise be to God. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes. God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.